scripture this morning is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, these words pull no punches. And probably if they are preached correctly today, we will feel punched. But I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would allow your word to be heard. Father, that you would remind us that every word, even a painful word, is a word given by grace because you love us and you desire us to be conformed to the image of your Son. That you desire in the very depth of your being that your children would be freed from sin and any stain of it. So, Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive the scalpel, to do the surgery, to cut away, and to cut open what needs to be brought to light. Father, give me clarity. Give me compassion, sensitivity, and give me the sharpness that comes with the sword of your word to do what you desire. We pray your Holy Spirit upon us. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. With a prayer like that, you're probably afraid. <laughs> uh, I will confess, uh, as I worked through this text, uh, worked it upon myself first, as I always seek to do, uh, that I cried several places. I trembled in several places. I don't preach this text, this challenging text, with anything less than a heart of love, that what we would get today is what Paul desires for us, which is a want to that is greater than the temptation of sin to be righteous, to be like Christ. Colossians, we have been going through it piece by piece uh, for several uh, months now, and we've called this uh, series Jesus is Enough because I, I believe that is what Paul has tried to stress in every sentence of this text to a, a church in Colossae that was being tempted with modifications and alterations and additions to the gospel. He continually proclaims Jesus is enough. And so the first two chapters of Colossians spend a great deal of time building that doctrine, building that teaching. 
and dismantling the flimsy alternatives like being extra religious or being uh, extra scrupulous or being extra spiritual as being absolutely unnecessary when you understand that Jesus is enough to bring you fully to God. As Paul turns to chapter 3, he continues to preach Jesus is enough, but he turns to the practical. It is no longer simply the, the doctrine that he wants you to understand. It's the application of that doctrine. How does Jesus is enough practically affect my ability to win the fight of sin, to live in this world, not earthly, but for Christ? And so chapter 3 begins Paul's appeal to live out what we know, to live out the gospel. We saw this, this hinge in Paul's argument begin last week when some weather may have kept some of you home that uh, Sunday morning, but we were uh, able to see in, in, chap- in verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 3 that this battle of living out the gospel begins in your mind, that you must have a resurrection mindset if you are going to live in this world in a manner that pleases Christ, that lives out the gospel. And, and that resurrection mindset is marked by having a mind that is worshiping all the time, that is set on, on the things above, namely Christ, that uh, reveals a selfless security, that recognizes that you are hidden in Christ and there is nothing in this world that can harm you and harm what you have in the gospel. And finally, that your resurrection mindset has, uh, is defined by a controlling hope that you are so certain and so aware of that day when Christ will come again in all of his glory that you define your present for that day. Now we turn to a question that is, I think, always on or near to the mind of a faithful Christian. But what about the sins that I still have in my life? What about... What about these things that I do and I think about and I say that I just, they just continue to beset me? Do you, do you struggle with what we call besetting sins? A constant awareness that I, I seem to do that which I, I, I shouldn't do. I seem to think the ways I shouldn't think. I, I seem to, to be continually conformed to worldly desires and worldly pursuits. That this, that this gospel that has been preached to me again and again just, it, 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 it seems to be unable to punch into the things I really struggle with, into the sins that continue to, to work themselves out of my life. Do you come with this question, how do I defeat this? How do I, how do I get over these, these temptations that seem to take control? Have you ever come to your time of prayer and and confession and the Lord brings to your mind something that is in your life and you can feel the, the whisper of the Spirit, confess this, repent of this. And then you can feel your flesh coming up on the other side of it. No, because you can't. How could I possibly 
repent of that because I, I know that I'm going to do it again. I, I don't have, I, I have the awareness of sin, but I don't have the want to, to kill it. You're familiar with that feeling. That's why Paul wrote this text. Paul wants to give us the want to that will help us kill our sins. He is going to, in this passage, give us the want to to live out the gospel, not pursue the sins of our mind or our heart. Where do I get this want to? Paul is going to show us in this text that there are three gospel motivations, three want-tos that the gospel gives us to mercilessly fight every sin in our lives. And so if you share with me the need for the want-to and the desire to be overcoming of besetting sins, then let us pay careful attention to what Paul tells us in these few short verses. The first gospel motivation that Paul gives us to mercilessly fight sin in our lives is this, our affection for Christ. Our affection for Christ. You see, the want to that Paul has for us first is the want to that comes from love. I know most people in this room have this experience, and some of you are too young to have this experience, but when you are in high school, you go through this phase where pretty much any guy or any girl could make you happy. And you could date every single one of them and be absolutely happy to be, to be dating them. You, you, you find just the thrill of, of the attention of someone of the opposite sex, no matter who it is, to be very joyful. And it is a great hobby for some of us in that age to, to know and, 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 uh, and, and chase after any guy or any girl. Because they give us this, 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 this moment of happiness it's all driven by hormones. It's all, it's all earthly in another way of saying it. But then, then someday, some way, you meet someone different. You meet the one. And then, boom, there is only one. Your heart has exploded into love for one. And how do you know that you have found the one, that you love that one? You don't see anyone else. You forsake all others. You're not interested in what they can offer. Your happiness is in that one and that one alone. And it is no sacrifice to you to give up all of the others. Because your heart goes boom. You put away all others and you commit to the one. Well, that is a, a, a metaphor in a sense of what happens when you get the gospel. 
because you have lived through this world pursuing all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of interests, seeking security and all different kinds of things. But when the gospel comes to your heart and you know it has come to your heart because it goes boom, taking a dead heart and making it alive. The gospel recreates all of your affections and focuses them upon Christ. You know that you have received the gospel when your heart loves Jesus. I know that sounds platitudinous, but that's true. You have had the gospel put in your heart when you love him. And you love him just like you love your wife or your husband by forsaking everything that competes with him. That is what the gospel does. Your affections are for Christ. You know Jesus is enough to make us happy. And that is what some of the, a famous Puritan, I think Thomas Chalmers, called the expulsive power of a new affection. You see, when your heart truly loves Jesus, it expels everything else that wants to compete with him. So what does this have to do with this text that we have written? So what? Well, that is why Paul says in verse 5, basically this, Expel your old lovers. If you are in the gospel, expel your old lovers. That is what he is saying in verse 5. Let's read it again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Paul is not giving us an exhaustive list of of sins and behaviors that are unacceptable. He is giving us a a representative list. It it could be multiplied a hundred long, but he is giving us this list to make this point. Expel your old lovers. Because notice well, all of the sins that he lists are sins of Desire, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He is attacking, he is saying, these sins live in your want to. These sins are your desire. They are your unregenerate affection. That is why you chase after these things. Sexual immorality is is any and all sexual activity apart from God's gift of the marriage bed. Impurity and passion speak of perverted and, and inordinate desires that you have no interest in keeping under control. Evil desire is simply being ruled by fleshly wants. What my body wants is what I give my body. And it is an entirely earthly mindset. But all of these are your desire. They are all attached to the organ of want to, of affection. 
And so Paul is attacking these with the gospel. But he saves. He saves the nastiest X for last. You know, the one, when you have found the one that thinks they should be the one, that nasty ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend who thinks that they've got you figured out and they're better. And what's her name? Covetousness. Covetousness. Notice that Paul's list goes from the outside, sexual immorality, all the way to the inside, into the very heart. You see, covetousness is the ex-lover that has sat on your heart and has defined and exacerbated your want to for every wrong thing in your life. The covetousness is the sin that knows you knows you so well, has lived in your heart since pretty much the day you were born. Covetousness knows how to whisper those lusty words in your ear that makes you say, yeah, a little more would be better. I wish I had that. I wish I could do that too. That lives in your heart. That is covetousness. And who is she? Who is she really? Paul exposes her. He he washes off the makeup and the perfume, and he points out what she really is. She is idolatry. She is this nasty, hell-bent person to pry you away from the love of God. It is idolatry. Now, how is covetousness idolatry? One of the commentators, I think, said it quite succinctly, F.F. Bruce. He says, covetousness is idolatry because it involves putting of some other object of desire in the place which God should occupy in his people's hearts. You see, covetousness wants to steal the affections that you are to have for God and control them for your earthly desires and lusts. But what do we see is the truth when we recognize that she is an idolater, when we recognize that she is a lover that is trying to steal us away from the only good, pure love that comes from God, the love we were designed for. She's a homewrecker. She will fill you with desire. She will tease you, but she will leave you with nothing. You see, what we have to grasp here, what Paul wants us to understand as he exposes this list of sinful desires is that Christ alone satisfies. Christ alone satisfies. He alone loves your soul. He alone has died for you. He alone can give and does give what your heart most desires because he made your heart for him. Here's a horrible thought. As I speak to all who who know Christ as personal Lord and Savior, 
Because Paul is speaking to to a, a congregation that confesses Christ. And yet he is saying to them, these sins of sexual immorality, of impurity, of covetousness, which is idolatry, is in your midst. So much so that he must write, put them to death. So here is a horrible thought to all who confess Christ as Lord. How much blood did Christ shed for the sins we've committed since calling him Lord? Do you know what I'm saying? Christ died for all of your sins. And to some extent, there is an excuse that you can make before you know Jesus Christ is Lord. I did not know what I was doing. I did not know that I was, that I was pursuing false, wrong lovers. But when you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, when you have said, I forsake all to follow you, there are still sins that you have committed since then, and Christ had to die for those. So as you think about this, as you think about where your affections are, set your affections upon Christ, that that there would be such a small amount of Christ's death that had to be accounted to my saved self. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? What are we supposed to do? Beloved, put to death these sinful desires. Christ endured no mercy for us. Out of love for him, show your sins no mercy. The second, the second gospel motivation, the second want to, to mercilessly fight against every sin in our lives, Paul gives us is this, our fear of God which we will look at verse 6, our fear of God. Now the want to that that lies behind verse 6 is a different kind of want to than the the love, the affection that we have for Christ, but it, it belongs inside of love, but it is a different sort. And the want to that Paul is seeking to arouse in verse 6 is this, reverence. Reverence. Reverence is love in the form of respect, in the form of honor. It is a very special kind of love that you give to only the fewest people in this world. It is the desire to honor and be well-pleasing to someone of the highest regard. Reverence makes you terrified of disappointing that person. Reverence, for many of us, is what we have for our parents. And more specifically, our dad. Every single one of us craves our dad saying, I am so proud of you. 
That is hardwired, I believe, into our souls to know that our dad loves us and is well pleased with us. And the reason that is so important is because we have been made to reverence our earthly father, to esteem his approval so much. When I was growing up, my dad worked in the Kansas City Police Department. And uh, that meant that he was basically everywhere. (laughs) Because the Kansas City Police Department (laughs) was everywhere. But my, my reverence for my dad made it especially terrifying to me to get caught doing something to be caught breaking the law, to be caught speeding. Because I knew that if I got caught by any policeman in the Kansas City Police Department, my dad was going to hear, you know what I did or what I caught? I caught your boy. The thought of that is terrifying to me because I don't want to embarrass the one I reverence with my poor behavior. And so, I was a pretty, pretty neat and, and clean kid. <laughs> but, um, but it was that reverence. I couldn't imagine my dad being embarrassed because of me. Now, why do I talk about that? Because when we receive the gospel, the gospel gives us a holy father in heaven. A father more perfect than any earthly father. Completely perfect. Completely holy. Completely loving. Completely worthy of all reverence. And in the gospel, just as your heart goes boom with the love of Jesus... It becomes compelled by the desire to be well-pleasing to your heavenly Father. And equally terrified to dishonor him. And do you want to know what that phrase is that captures all that, that I have just described that shows up again and again in the Bible? It's these three words. It's having the fear of God. The fear of God. And the fear of God is given to us to motivate us in our fight for sin. How? Look again at verse 6. On account of these, the sins we just talked about, the wrath of God is coming. You see, when you have the fear of God, you recognize this fundamental reality that sin dishonors and provokes the judgment of our holy, heavenly Father. We read together question 28, what our holy God does to sin when they, that is outside of Christ. We are told at the day of judgment they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. 
We recognize as we have come to the gospel that there is a fearful judgment outside of it, a just judgment outside of it. Now, perhaps you have an objection. Perhaps right now I have, I have crossed a line of popular theology. You have accepted the, 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 the beautiful truth that God is love. And you ask the question, well, how can God also be wrath if God is love? Because God's love is a holy love. You must recognize that love and hate have an inseparability about them. If you love children, you hate child abuse. If you love freedom, you hate slavery. If you love justice, you hate injustice. You can't do both. You can't say, I love justice, but do you know what else I also love? Injustice. Those cannot go together. If you truly love justice, you hate injustice. And we worship a holy God where he loves all that is good, all that is righteous, all that is true. And we know that is true because he also hates everything opposed to it. He hates sin because he loves what is good with all the passion of his infinite heart. And if he didn't, he would not be a God worthy of worship. And the reason that we know that we cannot separate these two is because the cross tells us both at the same time. We all look at the cross and we say, my goodness, how much does God love us that he gave his one and only son to die on that cross? How much does his love that he gave his son to die on the cross? I mean, that's the maximum measure, the maximum display of God's love. But why was he on the cross? Why did Christ hang on that cross? Romans chapter 3 verse 25 tells us this. Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, display God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you see The measure of God's love, the cross, is the measure of God's wrath for sin. And so we cannot see the powerful and unmeasurable love of God who had his son pay for our sins until we recognize that his wrath had to be satisfied by Christ paying for those sins on the cross. You cannot have God's love without also confessing God's wrath. Both are displayed eternally and immeasurably upon the cross. And it is because of the cross that God's perfect holiness and righteousness and his perfect love and mercy can be married and held together because on the cross, God is able to display himself as just 
as the judge that righteously condemns sin as what it is, worthy of his wrath, and at the same time justify, make righteous all who count Christ's death as their own. You see what I am saying here? The wrath of God must be known to every true believer of the love of God because you cannot know the two apart. As the commentator P.T. O'Brien said, only the person who understands something of the greatness of God's wrath will be mastered by the greatness of his mercy. And so before I go on any further, let us look at verse 6 again. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I have told you that the wrath of God is real. You only have to look at the cross to know it. And I have also told you that the only ones who are spared that wrath are those who have put themselves in Christ who took that wrath for them. But if that does not describe you, if you have not come to Christ as Lord and Savior, the wrath of God is coming. And you will not be spared. I appeal to you, this is a day of God's mercy. This is a day of God's forbearance. This is a day where God has brought you here to hear that mercy and grace for all of your sins has been provided in my son Jesus. Come to him, trust in him, make him your Lord and Savior, and avoid the wrath that is to come. So the fear of God means, as his children, we do not want to do what God hates. The idea of, of wanting what God hates is, a, is, 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 is unthinkable. The thought terrifies us because we recognize the wrath of God has been stored up for those things. So why would I do them? Listen, Romans chapter 2 verse 24 speaking to God's people in the Old Testament. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul wrote that judgment against the Jewish people. And the reason he wrote those words and brought those to their attention is because they thought that they were God's special people, but they were behaving and committing sins that they knew God hated. And because of that, the reputation of God amongst unbelievers was sullied. What Paul is saying to us here and what the fear of God should inform us is this. Our sin encourages the outsiders to blaspheme our Father. Because if we sin openly and without consideration, we are telling those who are not saved that the holiness of our God is nothing to fear. And you are bringing people to think less of the one who you are called by the gospel to reverence more than anything. May it never be. 
God's wrath reveals our sin deserves no mercy. And so out of our fear of God, fight your sin with no mercy. Simply look at the sin that is tempting you in your mind and picture God's just wrath on Christ to pay for it. I expect it won't take long doing that before your desire goes away. Third, though, the third want to, the third motivation, because I know you're thinking, I, I don't, I got enough, but the third is our gratitude for new life. Our gratitude for new life. You see, the third thing that that Paul wants us to recognize that that, that should control how we behave and how we deal with, with our life is that we have a new life. We have been made new. We have been set free. We have been raised with Christ. We have had our sins canceled on the cross. We have had, had all of the powers and authorities that seek to master us put to shame. And so you have new life, life with Christ, Christ in you. You have been saved from the wrath of God. You have been given all the treasures of heaven. You have been spiritually resurrected and you will one day be physically resurrected. And so there should be a past tense about your lifestyle. Paul says, these you once walked in when you were living in them. But that's not you anymore. You have a new life in the gospel. So it is, but now. And what defines the but now? What is the the want to? How does our life change when we have gone from death to life? Gratitude. Gratitude. You were once under judgment. Now you are under grace. This is fundamentally irrefutable. If you have been saved by grace, you live by gratitude. If you have been saved by grace, you live by gratitude. That's another way of saying live in and live out. If you live in grace, you live out gratitude. You were set free. It is, it is like you were in prison, literally. You were shackled But those shackles of sin have been broken. They have been shattered. They cannot be put on your hands and wrists any longer. I like to think of the movie Forrest Gump. Do you remember the little kid Forrest Gump who had these braces on his legs and kept him from being able to walk and being able to to, to participate in the games that all of his friends played? It made him an outcast. And yet there is this, this scene that is movie magic where he is being heckled and bullied, and he is, he is told by his friend, run. And he starts running, and then all of a the sudden, these shackles on his legs, they just burst into a thousand pieces, and this boy, for the first time in his life, has his legs under his own control, and man, are they great legs. He is suddenly able to run, and the next shot you see, he has put so much distance between his bullies on their bike that it's unbelievable. He runs like the wind. And I love the comment that, that Forrest makes uh, after this scene. He says, if I was going anywhere after that, I was running. My friends, that's the gospel. The shackles, the imprisonment, the death 
has been broken away from you. You are now in new life. Run hard. Run hard after godliness. Run hard after love and grace. Run out of gratitude, for you are free. And what is the evidence that Paul gives us for the gratitude for our new life? What are the sins that he focuses on? Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What is the evidence of our new life that Paul points to? He points to our speech. He points to what comes out of our mouth. He's not just talking about four-letter words. He's talking about words that are mean and, and dishonest and heartless, that are slanderous. Why does he speak of speech? I mean, speech is such a small thing. I don't kill people. I don't steal. I don't, I don't murder. You know, I don't do any of the big ones. Well, why is he picking on my mouth? Because the mouth is telltale. The mouth reveals whether our heart is gripped by grace or by hate. James is an appropriate uh, parallel to consider at this point. James writes in chapter 3, 9 through 12, With our mouths we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is bringing out an important understanding that contains a warning. He is saying, your speech tells the world what's in you. Your speech reveals what is in you. You live out what you truly live in. And if what is spewing out of you is salty language and malice and and anger and hate, then does Christ really form your heart? Christ has made you fresh water to speak truth in love. Why then are you spewing out sewage? I think it would be worthwhile for all of us to take verse 8 and write it out on a 3 by 5 card and tape it to the bottom of our computer monitors and read it again and again before we forward a nasty email, before we post or share a hate-filled thing on Facebook, before we write words that are not loving and kind to be sent and made permanent because they do not belong in the gospel uh, life. You have been given new life. Do not give it back to destruction. 
Do you cherish your new life? Do you cherish it? Like, like Forrest cherished his new legs. Then put away this filthy language. Put away this slanderous, malicious talk and this anger in your heart. Strip it off like dirty clothes. Your heart is alive by grace. Make your mouth a, 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 a speaker of thanks. Give thanks with your mouth. And we should look at Hebrews 13, 15 for this. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. My friends, let the gratitude for your new life shine through you by speech that is a sacrifice of praise. And so as we look now, the three gospel motivations that that are given to us to mercilessly fight every sin in our lives, we have our affection for Christ, we have our fear of God, and we have our gratitude for new life. My friends, apply those desires to your sins and they will wither, they will lose their allure. But you may be left with, "I, I feel like I come up so short. I feel like I have stumbled so much that I, that I have faltered. I, 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 I feel incapable. Let me leave you with encouragement. It's not where you are today. It's where your heart is headed that is most important. Listen to none other than the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, Christ has already taken hold of you. Simply keep pursuing him in all things, and sin will have no hold on you. Amen.